Thanks for returning to another awesome episode. Another totally stacked episode of the it's Wild really Edible World. It's a really good episode. Really good episode. The Wild Edible World podcast. I'm only one of your hosts, but this episode, you can call me Jeff Goldenbloom. And it's your boy, Snoop Doggy Dogwood. We're here to talk to you about a delicious, delicious little fruit ski called the Cornelian Cherry. Cornelian Cherry, yeah. A lot of people might not have heard of this. A lot of people might be familiar with it. Kind of, It's kind of hit and miss sometimes. Um, but the scientific binomial is Cornus Mas. And there's like 40 different varieties of this fruit. There's um, a bunch. Yeah. And yeah, it's a... Not even a cherry. It's not even a real cherry. Yeah. I'm not really sure why or where the cherry name kind of got attached to this plant. It resembles it a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you're going to be kind of loose with the terminology <laughs> of cherry, like, yeah, there's a lot of things that I can just call a cherry. Yeah. No offense to any cherries out there listening to this podcast. Uh, they look nothing like you. You're so unique and special. So special. Um, so yeah, we're here to talk about the Cornelian cherry. I brought a little, I, uh, I myself actually have two varieties grown right by me. Um, and they are pretty visually distinctively different. Um, the seeds so are different. pretty similar, just, uh, you know, again, hugely different in size. One's really small, one's really big. One's really red, one's really pale. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess we'll start talking first before we get into how they taste and what they look like. Um, we'll start with what we usually try to start with, which is like the most recognizable feature of the mm-hmm. plant. Um, in my opinion, my humble foraging opinion, you're going to notice notice this plant most easily when it's flowering. Um, yes. So not not the fruit. The fruit isn't as distinctive when it's on the tree. It's not as alarming or eye catching. The blooms, however, really, really, really are They're the golden beautiful. blooms, if you golden will. blooms indeed. Uh, so they they erupt in these like big yellow clusters that kind of look like. Um, Oh, what do they look like? Forsythia. If you're familiar with Forsythia, they kind of look like that, except they're just like really shrunken down and really tiny. So by that I mean they have four petals, but there are going to be many flowers erupting from one spot. So they have these like uh, pods that come out in the beginning of spring before the leaves even unfurl from the tree. It's one of the few trees that blooms first. You got the. It's one of the first thing that flowers. Uh, when everything is brown and gray, and, uh, and they're we're really striking. Oh my gosh! Yeah, they're beacons. They're they're mm-hmm. like fireworks happening in the trees. It's it's amazing. Um, and they uh, transition directly from the flower to the fruit. So with successful pollination of these fruits, some I mean with these flowers, sometimes you can end up with eight or nine cornelian cherries all stacked up in one little one little branch. Um, but it that's one of the things. I personally like about it is that it does produce a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of fruit. Heck yeah. So I think some people might qualify that as an invasive, um, but I don't think it's a very aggressive grower. You're going to be able to find it in some disturbed areas. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it grows too well from seed because, you know, while we we were researching it, it says the best way to propagate is by cutting yeah so normally things that do that they don't they don't seed well or yeah i mean i didn't uh do enough research to find out if it was more to do with uh fruit expectation or as Mm -hmm. far as successful germination but um i yeah i personally would follow that advice but uh you know they they end up places somehow and it's not all through cutting so it can't be impossible true 
So they have these bright golden flowers. Eventually, the, those die back. And once we're solidly into spring, the leaves come out and start unfurling. And what you have is pretty uh, pale underside green, normal kind of leafy colors. They actually kind of remind me of buckthorn um, very leaves. So they've got this one stem down the sen- center. They're very long and oval, and they kind of come to a point. They're only about, oh, an inch and a half, two inches. Two, I'd say two inches long. Mm-hmm. And then they have the one stem down the center and opposite veining all the way down and opposite leaves themselves opposite leaves themselves and even the branches are opposites too so it's all opposites all around the whole tree so proceeding further through the year after we get the leaves the next things that come out are the cornelian cherries yeah and green guys yeah they're green they're big and green and they have some uses there too um, you were mentioning they like they look like olives, and in Italy they yeah use in them Italy like that? they yeah in Italy they uh, brine them in you know your normal brine olive or uh, vinegar and salt and use them use them as olives yeah I think that's really cool um, that's a pretty common practice I think with a lot of unripe fruits uh, just all over the place I know you can do that with wild plums as well and I think that has a lot to do with preserving your harvest as much as possible even whenever it's unripe and like you know you're benefiting the plant whenever you're pruning all these uh, extra fruits off so like if you are familiar with if you own a cherry uh, apple tree or a peach tree or something you know you're gonna need to pick some of these fruit out it puts out way more fruit than the tree itself can structurally handle yeah and it seems like it like just judging from from the information that you, that we found while we were researching it seems like it flowers a lot and then about maybe about half of those flowers get actually pollinated yeah and no then, I, yeah you can optimally get up to eight or nine but most of the time you're only getting like four yeah because it says it has like 10 to 10 to 25 blossoms and to go from yeah. that to like clusters of like you said eight nine tops yeah you know, that's so it must be, it's trying, you know. It's trying. Well, and it's also, you know, it's a it's a plant strategy as well, where it sure. creates this abundance to almost ensure its success. Um, so, yeah, we got these fruit that come out when they're green. Um, they're hardly edible at all. Obviously, there's processing, like we were just talking about, that you can do to make render them edible. Um, but they ripen. They take several months to ripen. This uh, is one of the first flowering fruits, and then mm-hmm. it sits there and just grows and grows and grows until August. So we're at the very end of August when we're recording this right now, basically on the cusp of September. Um, I have two speci- uh, two variations, varieties here, uh, and I'd say the darker, more ripe one uh, definitely ripened like within the last week or two. And they look great, man. Those are deep. Oh, they're so delicious. They're purple. Deep so. purple, yeah. We ha- I have a purple variety and a larger red variety um, right by me, and they taste different. They look different. The trees look completely the same, but the fruit themselves are uh, quite quite a bit different. And uh, so they can ripen into a variety of colors. I believe the most common you're going to be able to you're going to be, be seeing, especially in urban areas or places where they might be intentionally planted, you're going to have kind of large teardrop shaped red fruits and they can be dark red but most of the time they're pretty clear cherry red you know Mm -hmm. i think it's not hard to speculate why they attach the name cherry to it because it's got a very cherry appearance even even whenever the even the purple ones you know these look like black cherries just tiny ones 
So that's the fruit. That's the the bark is kind of gray, silvery. Um, I don't have too many notes about the bark. I think like the most recognizable things to really pay attention to. If you can if you can catch the flowers and the fruit, then there's really no doubt uh, what this plant is. Yeah, visually, that's that's about the the best indicators. Uh, as far as like uses and stuff, though, I mean, this stuff goes goes way back. Yeah. Um, the wood of of this particular tree or bush is prized for being just incredibly dense. They used it for uh, like weaponry in ancient Greece, and they even have like an interchangeable name for their spear uh, that they used. Uh, I think it's Coronis or something, something along those lines. Oh. Something having to do with the with the like the Latin name. Uh, because, but it was like the same name as a tree. Yeah, because of the density of the dude. That's cool. Of the wood and legendary. Yeah, super cool. And I was we were talking a little bit in uh, Asian culture, and they use the uh, they use the leaves for tea, mm. which is supposed to help with your jing, which is uh, Chinese for essence. So. Another one that you can use a bunch of the different parts. Man, God knows my Jing could use some help. Yeah, I was going to say, man, your Jing's looking a little... Oh, a little little faded. (laughs) I know it. Yeah, so this isn't a North American native plant. Um, And like we were saying, how it kind of does fruit prolifically, and they do have rather large seeds. I'm not going to toss these seeds out into the wild or whatever. Um, Steve's thinking about growing some, so he's going to keep it. I'm trying. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't consider this an invasive plant. I just, you know, it's not native. Um, and actually I think they're, they were able to, I'm not sure if there's a for sure pinpoint on when it was first introduced into the United States, but there is a written documented record of Thomas Jefferson having planted four of these trees in 1774. So not that they all came from that. Because obviously now we can get Cornelian cherries from all over the world, and sure. um, but they they are uh, native to Southern Europe and Southwest Asia. So those are the communities that have been using this plant for the longest amount of time. And yeah, I read I read similar things about like the hardness of the wood mm-hmm. is actually um, you know a lot of ancient uh, Chinese medicine they were using properties of the plant to reaffirm like how medicinal and good it is for you. So part of that being was was that the wood was so strong they're like this has got to be good for you because like sure. everything about this plant is just so strong and invigorating and st- yeah not to say strong again but so that's what the plant looks like that's where you can find it where you okay so i didn't say where you can find it um as far as its growing patterns it actually tolerates a lot of different soils it likes acidic soil but it can Mm -hmm. tolerate alkalinic soil to a degree but you're going to find this plant most likely either intentionally placed in um yeah for its like visual appeal yeah exactly yeah that's one of the reasons it it has become so successful um in a place that it isn't native is because of its flowering properties how early it flowers people love that i love it yeah so you can find this place in a lot of intentionally planted in people's yards or i have found it alongside sidewalks basically like right by a tunnel that goes under a bridge and that's where i find my cornelian cherries so Mm -hmm. i'm not even sure that those are intentionally planted because they're covered in a horribly invasive ivy. Like, there's all sorts of crap going on right there that I can't, I couldn't possibly deal with. But there's these Cornelian cherries just hanging out, doing, doing a great job. So they tolerate both acidic and alkalinic soil. 
and they can survive up to negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. So they can actually grow in pretty cold areas as well. So I think the USDA range for them, if anybody's familiar with that, is from anywhere is around four to around eight. So we're that's awesome. I don't know what this means, but I was told <laughs> we live in Zone Five B. Five B, that's us. So, Representing. yeah, happy to find those Canadian cherries. <sighs> okay, so I think that's the end of our first first so. um, yeah. little uh, section, and then after this, we're gonna eat some more. We've already been noshing on a whole jar that I brought. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. We're going to eat a little bit more, talk about how it tastes and the variety of things you can do with it, and maybe um, some special events that we've got coming up that we'd love to share with you guys. So stay tuned and come back after the ads. Don't leave us! Thank you for coming back from the ad break. And welcome back. We're here, too. That's us. So uh, we wanted to start off this second section with a little bit of an announcement. We have a really cool event coming up. And we wanted to give everybody that listens to this podcast that might be in our general area mm-hmm. a couple weeks' notice to be able to attend. That sweet and kind and generous brewery that we talked about during our elderflower, elderberry, elder episode... Uh, is we're going to do a little collabo. Yeah, yeah. We're going to do a talk with Bubble House Brewing in Lyle, Illinois. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of the ingredients that they've used in some of their beers. Mm -hmm. I contributed the spruce tips to their uh, Penguin Boots American Pale Ale. And then there is another beer that has elderflower in it. That I did not contribute, but is still just as tasty. And we're going to educate some people about them. So September 15th, which is a Thursday, we're going to spend an hour and a half at Bubble House Brewing in Lyle, Illinois. Just talking about these ingredients, talking about a little bit of an introduction to foraging safely. We'll have a couple slides on uh, what these ingredients look like, how you can find them. Uh, how to harvest them, what nutrients and flavors they bring to the table. And then uh, we'll have a little bit of a Q&A where we can also talk to John, the head brewer and owner at Bubble House, a little bit about how he uses them, what part in the process he used them in, and mm-hmm. what he was looking for. And you can ask us some questions about foraging and plants and gardening and uh all sorts of fun, whatever your heart desires, we're at your fingertips. So. And then, and then we'll probably be able to, you know, taste some, taste some. Oh man, things. the most important <laughs> part of it all, you get free beer. Oh yeah. So when you come to this event, not only is it a free event, there's no tickets or anything. All you got to do is show up, but you also get a couple free pours of beer so that you can taste what we're talking about when we're talking about it. So to really immerse yourself. 
in the flavor and uh, truly understand. So please come. Please. It'd make us so, so happy. It's going to be so much fun. Why would you not come? It's going to be cool. It's free. Yeah, so let's do it. Everybody's doing it. Everybody will be doing <laughs> it, and you're going to feel like a loser. So, yeah, I mean, I guess we'll just... We got these uh, cherries here. We're going to taste a couple of them. So the yes. purple variety is small as... it's The purple variety is about as small as my fingernail, my pinky fingernail. So we're talking like a half inch. It's pretty round. Um, it is very obviously purple, and the juice on the inside is very, very deep red. So these have ripened to a very soft texture. They're they're pretty mushy, um, and I think they're best that way. We were talking earlier about. I like them both ways. Personally, I mean, I do, I do too. If you find a way, I like them soft. I like them uh, firm. I yeah, like, with a little bit yeah. of astringency when they're yeah. so firm. Definitely. I'm the kind of person, I'm the kind of freak that kind of enjoys that experience. So whenever Absolutely. you're I'm munching down on choke cherries and your mouth is all drying out, I kind of like that. It's like enjoying wine in a, in a weird way or something. But uh, the, when these are slightly underripe, they can have the same effect, but it's they're still so good. Oh, they're lovely. I'm like so sour. But not too sour that to might, make it go like blah. That might be my favorite part is how sour they oh, are. Oh, they're so sour. They're I love so sour flavors. Good. Yeah. So it does have an uh, inedible seed. I mean, I guess it's not inedible. It's not toxic. It is just very hard. It's going to be like trying to eat an olive pit. So there is a lot of comparing these to olives, and I think that's pretty accurate. The pit on the inside looks like an olive pit. And I imagine it's as hard. I haven't tried to chew it and eat it. However, you can use it as a coffee substitute. So there are... Which is awesome. Yeah, there's documents that show, like, you can roast it and grind it up and use it as a coffee substitute. I've never tried it. I'm probably not going to try it because I'm pretty skeptical of anything called a coffee substitute that it's actually going to taste like coffee. I'm sure if you roast this nut... (laughs) And grind it up, it tasted, tastes like roasted ground nuts, which is basically what coffee is. It's not going to have those, like, specific flavors. I am in full support of, like, blending it with other things, like chicory root and dandelion root and getting, like, a bit of a blend and maybe a little bit of uh, real cherries in there with some of their pits in there. And then you get some, like, almondy, actually chocolatey, roasty flavors, and that's really going to kind of complete the spectrum, I think. I, I expect whenever I'm drinking a cup of joe, and what I wouldn't get with a cup of fake Joe. Yeah, I think I like coffee too much to. That's what I'm saying. To you know, play around behind its back. You wow, know. you said that so much better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so we've, I've made my way through a couple small purple ones. I'm going to try the larger red ones. So when I was I was just explaining to Steve over the break, like how I collected these, they you don't want to pull them off of the tree actually. You want to come at the right time. It's it's similar to like mulberry collecting, where basically if if you can, most ideally, you're gonna lay a big blanket out underneath this tree and then shake the ever living crap out of it and have them all drop onto the towel or blanket or tarp, whatever you're using. That's a really good comparison, actually. Mulberry to compare yeah. it to mulberries. Yeah, because yeah, they disconnect, they fall off the stems so so easily whenever they're ready. They want to fall off the tree. Um, so what I do, I since I wasn't collecting that many of them, 
and I didn't have I, it's right by a road so I wasn't going to lay down like a tarp or whatever I just collected with my hands spent about 15 minutes and I collected more than we're well we might actually eat this whole jar <laughs> yeah that's probably we, we kind of do that's that. probably gonna be gone which is fine yeah. um there's a couple trees it's not a big deal but I was just kind of cupping my hand underneath the cherry and just like prodding it with my fingers I'm not pulling it at all i I called it tickling them a little bit, but tickling I don't want to be old too cherries. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be too visual with that. But uh, oh, yeah, they, the point is that they drop into your hand without any effort or resistance, and then otherwise you can um, give them a little squeeze, see uh, see how tender they are, and if they're fir- firm, you're going to get a little bit of astringency or extra sourness. But if they're nice and soft and kind of squishy, you can, as with you, normal fruit, you're going to expect a little bit more sugar development, more ripeness, and a little bit less astringency. So I found a appropriately squishy cherry that I tickled off the tree and I will uh, yeah let, let's try it um right off the bat it's like a whole different flavor it's like it's lighter I don't know it's fruitier I don't know which one do you like better Steve I like them both better I can't choose. They each have their properties. Like I said, the darker ones, uh, the more ripe, darker ones are jammy. They they taste like jam. Yeah. Just just straight straight off the pit, and the the brighter red ones are are just they're bright and they're the yeah astringent, but like not at all in a bad way. No. They're just they're just really good, man. Yeah. The, the texture's really nice if yes. they're if they're firm. The texture's just great. It's. it's- it's very much like a cherry. Yeah, it's I mean, like a it's, cherry, yeah. it's got cherry juices. It's got the cherry flesh. I don't know. It's yeah. It's really, really, really good. But before we run out of time, I don't want to spend all of our second portion just, just, just munching <laughs> on cherries over the mic. So let's uh, let's get some interesting nutritional information. There's some cool stuff out here about this. Yeah, there there definitely is. So uh, you know, I've been going back and forth looking for Cornelian cherry info, and you know, to get you some numbers on this and that. And we decided that we're just gonna we're just gonna we're just gonna bypass a lot of that and just tell you all the all the really good things about it. So. Uh, it is high in vitamin C, 61% of your daily, daily value. Um, it, it does have some sugar in it, at least for the, uh, for the like farm raised. So there are certain varieties that are raised for, uh, you know, mass production for, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. What do they use Cornelian cherries in? Uh, you know, couldn't tell you. I actually didn't no, look that either. up at all. I didn't look um, that up either. But there we are 40 that. different varieties. Yeah, 40 and different because varieties. because of the difference in colors, like, we are going to experience a little bit of difference in the nutrition. Through and then just these, like, like other fruits that we harvest, the, the wild fruits, the fruits that you're going to find as you're walking down the trail or uh, down the street, down the sidewalk, is going to have a much much less of a sugar content than the, the treats that are being, you know, fed certain nutrients and, uh, you know, that are made to be to attract people to come get them. Yeah, that have been cultivated. Yeah, exactly. Too, cultivated. Because sure. this has been uh, we you know, humans have been interacting with this plant for hundreds of years. Yeah. So hundreds. It, yeah, probably even longer. You know, it's just that's just the documented human influence. We've probably been selecting bigger, better cherries for quite some time. And if you are uh, someone that's looking to make some Cornelian cherry wine, for instance, maybe you know those those higher sugar contents are going to be better for you. They're going to yeah you know. 
create a higher ABV wine or maybe certain flavors you're looking for. Um, but there's all sorts of other stuff. Uh, what was the other nutrient that we were talking about? Potassium. Potassium. So much potassium. Your full daily value, and I, I think I think it was 100 grams. I'm not yeah. positive about that. Um, yeah, no, it's an incredible source of potassium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think it was, there were a couple minerals, but um, I don't have those in front of me. But there's a bunch of places you can go to find this. If you're not able to attain, like, uh, wild varieties, there's... I'm going to a U-Pick farm this weekend to grab a cultivated variety just to have, like, some side-by-side comparisons. And that's awesome. It's fun. It's Where cool. Where is that? So that's over in Iowa, actually. Oh, very cool. So, so you're but doing a little bit traveling. Here, it's... From us, it's only three hours. Okay. Just under three hours. That's so, so that's, cool. That's a pretty pretty quick, easy weekend trip. I'm going there to collect cornelian cherries and hazelnuts. Because Excellent. I have both wild varieties in my possession, and I'd love to compare them with cultivated sure. varieties. Yeah. So, look for something like that near you. Go to if you're in our area or you're in Iowa. Somehow, uh, you can go to Redfern Farm. That's where I'm going. That's excellent. So, very cool. Other than that, I mean, just your your other traditional uses you could think of for berries plus oh, sure. plus more. So, like uh, Cornelian cherry cheesecake. You know, other other berry usages, the the juice, um, it's used in savory concepts. Like, uh, they use it in sweet and sour soups in Russia. Nice. They, uh, they use it in meat sauces, or sauces for meat. So if you can imagine, like, a, oh, yeah. a really nice cut of something with uh, even uh, probably, like, a nice braised pork with some yes. cornelian cherry compote or something along those <sighs> I want that right now. God, that I haven't eaten so good. dinner. That's I'm starving. Why. Yeah, that's, why. <laughs> that's why we're housing this entire jar exactly. of cherries. Exactly. Um, but yeah, no, I've seen other really popular uses for it too, like uh, more in the liquid realm. Where uh, I think you mentioned shrubs earlier. I think a shrub would be a really good idea. A uh, vinegar is also really would be really really awesome. And I actually saw a recipe for that for if you have particularly. Um, extra sour, uh, pretty astringent berries because some of them, you know, like with uh, cornel or uh, choke cherries, and a lot of other wild plants um, that have a lot of different varieties across the country, you're gonna find a bunch of it's crab apples. You know, you're, every tree is different. You're gonna have to try them and find out. And some of these are gonna retain their astringency for a little bit longer than you'd like to use them or past ripeness and in that case you can make vinegar out of them which i think is a really great idea um syrups as well like simple syrups and make a really good simple syrup uh, steve mentioned uh, fruit leather yeah i think these would make a phenomenal fruit leather absolutely okay so with that i think i think that's the the last things we have to say about this uh, really, really fun plant that we've just gotten to know together. And we hope you'll look for it, man. Yeah, I hope you'll look for it, too. I hope this you guys have good success one. finding it. They're it's all good fun. ones, but this yeah. is a good one. Definitely keep an eye out for it in the spring. If you don't find it this year, look out in uh, March. March of next year, you're going to be able to find these big golden blooms. There's 20 of them in one spot, like one little node on the branch. So a whole tree covered in them. You're going you're gonna to notice it for sure this time. Also, if you come to Bubble House, we'll tell you where to find them. Yeah, that, that's a that's a little little Easter egg at our at our talk. Yeah, I can we'll drop tell some, you where to find Cornelian cherries. Yeah, I can drop some <laughs> geo geo points. I can find some. So I think to leave off this episode, I found a really cool uh, little blurb from a Roman poet named Ovid, 
Um, and I think I'll just read that to close us out. So thank you for joining us for one more episode where we find the best food low tide, curbside, and trailside. And earth untroubled, unharmed by hoe or plowshare, brought forth all those men had a need for. And those men were happy, gathering berries from the mountainsides, Cornell cherries, or black caps, and edible acorns.